I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Ari Hurston, a singer, songwriter, author, and music industry expert who has successfully built an extremely well-rounded independent career. Ari's blog, Ari's Take, has become a go-to resource for artists and musicians to gain practical knowledge and education about the music industry. I was so lucky to be able to dig deep with Ari on his past experiences building his career and his perspective on the current music industry and what artists can do to maintain their autonomy and build healthy and sustainable careers. Yeah, it's I feel like you do so many different things. Obviously, podcast author. I was just reading before you got on to this call about your uh dipping your toes into acting and all of the random things that you've done um in that. And so I'm really curious, when you were starting out, um did you imagine that you would have such like a multifaceted career? Uh short answer is no, uh, I, my entire goal, once I decided that I was going to be a, uh, musician, I guess a performing singer songwriter, I went all in on that and, and was very myopic about it. That was all I was focusing on doing. I mean, I, I initially went to college for one year to be a high school band director. I was studying classical trumpet. I thought I was going to be a, a music teacher, a band director. Um, I realized very quickly, I didn't want to do that. I wasn't resonating with that. Um, and when I played my first coffee house show my freshman year of college, everything changed. I'm like, that's it. This is what I want to do. So I went all in on that. Um, and, you know, there were year. there was probably a good five years or so where 100% of my income and everything I did was just my music, my solo singer-songwriter career. It, was, it wasn't until after I moved to L.A. when um, I started to explore other opportunities um, because, I mean, I moved to LA, I was making the majority of my income at that point touring. And so I knew how to make money in music touring, but I didn't know how to make money in LA, staying in LA, doing the LA thing. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> so the first like two years I was in LA, I actually spent the majority of those years on the road. And after two years, I got back and I was like, why did I move to LA if I'm never here? Why am I here? I'm paying insane rent. I moved out with my girlfriend at the time and and we weren't seeing each other. And and so she suggested, she's like, well, uh, you could, you know, so we we're basically brainstorming, like, how do you make money <laughs> in LA, uh, you know, using like creative talents? I'm like, sure, you know, you can do the lift thing or whatever. But and because uh, I wanted to stay put, I had just finished two massive tours, uh, did like finish recording an album like, you know, I'm not I don't want to tour again until this album comes out. So she suggested I submit some headshots to commercial acting agents in town uh, to just make because there's like we heard you make good money doing commercial acting I'm like, all right, whatever. Yeah. And 
I sent out the headshot. We got a list of like the top 25 agents in LA, commercial agents. And literally, I remember packaging in these window envelopes, taking the 25 window envelopes to the post office. And mind you, my headshot in quotes, was just a promo photo that I had. And I heard you're supposed to staple your resume to the back of the headshot. My resume were my high school theater acting credits. I had nothing <laughs> else. I didn't act. And I was like, yeah, I was in, you know, West Side Story. Um, so I sent that out. And I got the next day, I got a call from someone, a woman who she was like, um, Hey Ari, I know you submitted to the commercial division, uh, but you know I'm uh, I'm Courtney. I run the uh, theatrical division at Aqua Talent, and I'm curious if you're looking for theatrical res- representation. So I mean, long story short, I went in. I'm like, all right, let's try it out. For five years, I did that pretty heavily. I was like, you know, auditioning. Uh, I did a bunch of TV shows, a couple movies, bunch of commercials. I mean, there's still like an American. Heart Association CPR training video uh, going around that I shot. <laughs> Can I be honest, though? It doesn't surprise me that you got picked up right away because I feel like it's the hair. Like you can't ignore yes. the hair and the hair is phenomenal. Um, but you. I do feel like it, it does, at least in that world, it has to mm-hmm. set you apart in a way to like have such a unique look. Hundred percent, and and she did not beat around the bush with that. The agent, she was just like, "Listen, it's uh, like you have a unique look. I can get you auditions based on your look. Uh, yeah. I don't even know if you can act or not." Were the words that came out <laughs> of her mouth, and I'm like, "What? This is L.A. This is Hollywood. This is crazy." But I mean, it makes yeah. sense. It's all about the look. But like, as an artist, hearing that from like a suit, I'm just like, mm-hmm. "What?" Get out! Like I've spent my whole life training to, as an artist, and I'm an artist, yeah. and like I can't believe it. But I do understand that idea of like I've trained so hard in this other way, and then you kind of recognize mm-hmm. that's it, you know in some in some facets of industries, it's just there's such a small thing that people are looking for, um, and we can get into all of that. But I want to take mm-hmm. it back for a second to sure. to like baby baby Ari and what suburban. <laughs> Wisconsin? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, initially, elementary school was a suburb of Milwaukee, and then middle and high school was Madison, Wisconsin. What was your idea of success when you were growing up? Uh, Like, what benchmarks were you setting for yourself when you were very young? Oh, gosh. Um, Interesting question. Uh, I guess very young. um, Huh. Uh, success at at like in the elementary school era was getting picked for the kickball team at recess. I mean, that, that, you know, I didn't want to be the last pick. Uh, But, (laughs) um, you know, I don't think I really started thinking about uh, any kind of of career or future. I think until um, maybe middle school where I was in this all city honors band, concert band. I was playing trumpet and my band director, like the band director there, Mr. Saltzman, uh, was, he was such a, just like a kind soul. And, and I'm like, and he was, he seemed to be having such a great time and he was conducting the band and like, man, I'm like music, this could be a job. And, and, and I, I didn't really have any awareness that there were other careers in music other than what he was doing, which was he was a te- a music teacher for a middle school. I'm just like, maybe I could do that. And that seemed like success to me. 
um, I, I suppose. Uh, but then, you know, when I started thinking like more seriously, you know, once I started to really explore music, you know, success, of course, always was like the artist you heard on the radio or like Dave Matthews band was like the epitome mm-hmm. of success for me when I was like, you know, 13, 14, 15. And, and my friend group in middle and high school was obsessed with them. And we go see their shows and everything and was like, oh, that's that success if you can like you know that's the most incredible thing ever and that that like the first show i saw i think i was probably 13 and it was the most magical moment i'd i'd had um but yeah i mean just like success in general you know i my parents weren't um I grew up in kind of a lower middle class uh family my dad is a social worker he's been a social worker his whole life um and i mean we we spent like a year and a half in San Diego and he worked for the homeless project and he was he was the guy in the van going around and 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 um you know uh picking homeless people up uh and bringing them to shelters um and he worked for the AIDS project and then we came back to Wisconsin and um he'd been he'd done the social work thing uh virtually my whole life so you know we never had we didn't really go on many vacations. We didn't live a lavish life. But, you know, my parents, I guess, encouraged me early on that the most important thing is that that someone can do is to, to help others. And, like, I got that training really early on. No matter how much you have, you can always help others. Even though we never had that much, um, there was still stuff we could do um, to support those who were, who were less fortunate than us. Um, so, you know, I never thought of success as like a monetary thing. Um, money was never important. To, it's still not important to me, to be honest. I, I hate money. Money is something that I think, you know, it's the root of all evil. It's the cause of all problems. Like I, I don't like my, I just, I, I like having enough money where I don't have to think about it. Uh, but I, nothing I do is ever for the money because that, that's an empty pursuit. Um, but Yeah. I don't know. That was a winding answer. <laughs> well, I think that success exists on so many different planes for people as they move through their lives and it changes with what examples you have. And so I think mm. that, and that's something I found talking to so many different people. It's like, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to like play Madison Square Garden and like be mm-hmm. on TRL. Right. And so your are exa- <laughs> right. like your, your own ideals for yourself and like what you think is possible is based on what you see others doing. So at first mm-hmm. it's high school band teacher and then it's Dave Matthews and like you're getting these right. different glimpses into the possibilities. Mm-hmm. I feel like you were pre-Ed Sheeran doing the live looping one <laughs> one man show. And I'm really yeah. curious that did that come from growing up in the suburbs, maybe outside of a music community, kind of to be your own one man band? Um, it came out so I went to um University of Minnesota um and that first year in college, I was playing the coffee houses around town and my roommate was a cellist. My RA on my floor was a beatboxer and the girl down the hall sang backups with me. And th- this was the band. And so we took we were playing coffee houses and other uh, little events on campus um, all over the place all the time. This was the band. Then, uh, you know, the they they kind of all just lost interest or gained did started doing other things. And so I started playing solo shows and I was doing the bar thing, the four hour cover gigs and. 
it was hard to hold people's attention. And I also missed that kind of fuller sound. And I had learned from my um, RA, uh, who was the beatboxer, I kind of was like picking up beatboxing a little bit from him. And I had my trumpet. And uh, one day, I, I feel like I was at an open mic and I saw some dude looping 12 bar blues and soloing on top of that. And I was like, oh, wow, this technology exists. He had a little pedal. I'm like, this is cool. Yeah, it's definitely a smart workaround. And I feel like obviously since then, all of the technology that people utilize to be those like one or two person shows versus hiring out a full band has gotten so, so developed. But mm -hmm. I, I also had an RC20 back in the day. So uh, yeah. I, I, I wasn't <laughs> nearly as proficient as you, but I definitely, um, you know, I tried. Yeah. So you went to college in Minneapolis and mm -hmm. I'm really curious your opinion on this. I feel like in the age of technology and music technology specific, mm -hmm. like the local uh, music scenes have kind yeah. of deteriorated. Like we've definitely seen that in New York, for instance, mm. and LA has a particular scene, but it's mostly around like songwriting, et cetera. And so I'm curious what you think that technology's impact has been on the music scene and like how we can kind of get that feeling back utilizing mm. digital tools, but also going back into our communities in which we live to develop them again. Mm. Uh, well, I'm talking to the queen of utilizing digital tools. I've <laughs> only been reading about your NFTs lately, so <laughs> we don't need that's, to get into that. Cause <laughs> that's a kind thing. Uh, we, yeah, we can get into that at the end. We can get into that at the end because I have a lot of questions for you. We're going to turn the mic around at the end. We can. Um, <laughs> um, but no, um, I mean, that's a really insightful question, um, how digital, how technology has affected the local scene. Uh, to be honest, I, I hadn't even really thought about that. I left Minneapolis when uh, in 2010. Um, now, I was there for seven years. I thought it was an incredible incredible local scene. It was so vibrant. Um, you know, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities have the history, of course, of Prince and the replacements and atmosphere, Soul Asylum, uh, Semisonic, um, Quiet Drive, on and on and on. Um, and it's, it's, uh, and so at the time when I was there, like I was out seeing live music, mostly local live music, four nights a week, and I loved it. And so I was either playing a show or seeing a show almost every night of the week. Um, and there was this, there was a community, there was a scene, there were people like we would see the same people at all the sh local shows around town. It was so supported. Um, you know, even the local media really supported uh, the music in town. Um, never me. That's another story. That's a chip on my shoulder. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, yeah, there was the local station, radio stations. There was the new blogs and newspapers, and you know, local Twitter influencers, that kind of thing. Um, and but but Minneapolis really loved their own the music scene. But what I kept seeing, and and honestly, one of the reasons I left Minneapolis was, um. People would have massive success in the Twin Cities. Uh, we're talking like selling out First Avenue, 1,700 tickets, headlining, um, and just being the biggest thing in town and going on tour and having nobody come to their shows and then getting discouraged and breaking up. And that was like a big story of Minneapolis. We, it felt like we were an island there. Um, I vowed I didn't want that to happen. Like I had reached my ceiling in Minneapolis. I never got to that 1700 mark, but I got, got to like the 800 mark, um, of selling tickets at, to the headlining shows. And it was, uh, 
but it was something that I didn't want to, I basically, I hit the ceiling. I'm like, you know what? I need the challenge. I need the new challenge. I want to go out to LA. And I coming to LA, I found a, a beautiful, like you said, songwriter scene here, which I loved, which that actually wasn't, didn't really exist in Minneapolis. Um, but more to your question, like, do, can digital technologies um, adjust their local scene? I mean, absolutely. All the conversations right now, especially with the data analysts, um, you know, like I was listening to one of the heads of uh, data uh, at chart metric one of the the data scientists at chart metric um and chart metric you know analyzes spotify now pandora instagram tiktok basically just like looks at the data and the trends and playlists and all that stuff and they were saying um traditionally of course you target your local market because that's what you know and you play shows there but it's like your local market not even your local city we're talking they're like your local country is way too small at this point. Like there are billions of people around the world and and hundreds of millions of listeners with their smartphones on Spotify. And if you're only targeting your your local city or state, you're missing out on hundreds of millions of other people. And so what they're seeing is that what starts to trigger, um, they, they call them trigger cities. And so there's like cities around the world, not in honestly mostly not in western countries that if they start to see upticks there other cities will latch on and other um listeners around the world and the algorithms how the, all the algorithms that are working right now is they're just analyzing streams and skip rates and saves and and how the user interacts with that and so because we're so data driven and now it's so global it's like there are artists who are getting Currently, there are artists with 50 million streams on Spotify who can't sell 50 tickets to their local hometown show. And that's a reality that we're in right now, which is crazy to me. Yeah, I feel like it's flipped the whole process. I've talked to people like you and people who kind of came up playing, um, you know, the New York venues, right, that you Mm -hmm, play. mm -hmm. And that just doesn't exist anymore. Like no one ever has to play alphabet lounge again here, right? This idea, you know, it's, which (laughs) you're probably not familiar with, but like, and I'm sure there are Minneapolis venues too. It's like the whole trajectory of what you need to do to start from zero to go to a hundred is completely different and random almost. Uh, Kind of, but, but I think there is something to be said about cutting your chops and develop and becoming a good live performer. Like the only way you can become a good live performer is by performing live. Like getting, getting a hundred million streams on Spotify doesn't mean you're a great live performer. It means that the algorithm loves you. Um, and, and, and maybe one or two people at Spotify love you enough to pop you on their playlists. Um, and, and that means nothing about whether you're going to have a career or not. Um, but, I, you know, every manager that I know, and of course, booking agents, they're like, I'm not looking at their their numbers if I'm going to decide to work with them. I have to go to their show. Like, I want to I want to see that they can put on a show that people are responding to them, that they they know how to captivate an audience. Uh, that's how you build a career. So I completely agree that um, to to kind of more or less break out for a lack of a better term um 
in a way where you have you're starting to build an audience and a fan base and making serious revenue from streaming you don't need to play the local venues absolutely you don't need to build it local you don't need a tour to, honestly um but if you want to build a career and have uh and you want to have a live business uh i do think it's important to play those local to cut your teeth in the local uh, scene and play those smaller local venues um, and just learn how to react and engage with an audience. Um, And not to mention, like, it's the best way to build community, I I find, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, even in this age of TikTok and Instagram and Spotify, uh, I'm like, there, there is no replacement for the electrifying experience that you have with somebody in real life. And I think this last year during the pandemic, has really shown us that like there's only so much you can get from a screen and like I'm going through that right now I'm releasing music right now like um, my latest Mm -hmm. single just came out last Friday my album's coming out in a couple months and like normally I would be playing release shows like I would be doing a tour you know I'd be meeting people and I would get the feedback from them and and they would come up to me and they would grab me and hug me and say, wow, this song really meant so much to me. Or I'd see them crying at shows when I play a song. And now, like, I got maybe 100 messages from the first single I put out of how deeply it resonated with some people, like like private messages. And I feel almost embarrassed to, to say that it didn't hit me. And, and I'm just like, well, like, I had to check myself because I was mm-hmm. upset about that, you know, I didn't get on any Spotify playlists and that my Spotify numbers were low and that like, you know, uh, no one Spotify cares about me and like nothing was <laughs> what, you know, and like I was, I was, I had to check myself. I'm just like, but like, why do I care more about these random vanity metrics and these numbers? And like, if one dude at Spotify likes me or not versus these hundred people who said that they they were bawling listening to this song and that it deeply resonated with them and they spent the whole day going around because they're going through a breakup or they're or they're exploring grief and loss and they needed this song and it it just but like one person saying that to me in in real life I'll remember for years but these digital messages through the screen they just brush off and I, they don't hit the same way. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I miss that live experience and, and, uh, I think there's, there's definitely something to that that you can't replace. Yeah. I think that this year has been like the year of building the digital music scene, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, essentially these hyper niche communities that exist online. And, and Mm -hmm. I think it's good in the sense that you can connect with people from everywhere. Right. And so mm-hmm. there's no there's no limit. But I also understand this idea of like it does make you so much more focused on like the screen and the numbers and the data and the algorithm and all of these things. Because there's <laughs> right because there's not you're not, you're lacking that like gratification almost of, you know, seeing people and actually like seeing their faces and, and all of mm-hmm. that. So it's mm-hmm. it's a process and feeling them. I, I mean, I, I think. It's even like, you know, I'm on Zoom all day with people talking to them and it's like it's nice to see their face, but I'm not really feeling them. Whereas like when you're in a room, it's that like it's that kind of connection that you have. It's that electricity. It's that whatever you want to call it. And and, um, not even just like being on stage when you have that like 
levitation of a room or the spiritual connection with everyone in the space, that oneness, um, even just like being with one other person in a, in a space, um, it's just like that, that emotional, like visceral feeling, um, which I think we're, you know, we're desperately lacking, but yeah, you're totally right that it is, there are communities being built up um, online right now, and you know we're seeing Clubhouse. What's happening on Clubhouse these days, and mm-hmm. and that's a really interesting digital community that's that's happening, and and there's great networking and all of that happening there, um, and and elsewhere on Twitch, of course, um, and all the uh, live streaming platforms. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it's showing my age, but like that still doesn't hit me or resonate with me uh, in the same way that being in person with someone does. I don't think it's your age. I just think it's the times that we're in. But I'm curious. So you you went to college for music business. And I know you discovered, uh, what what is that book? Donald Passman. Donald Passman's, yeah. Uh, yeah. All you need to know about the music business, my competition. Yes. <laughs> so you discovered that book and I'm really curious, do you think the education that you got from that book in college adequately prepared you for music <laughs> industry in the real life? Great question. Um, hundred percent. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, so I was in college actually, when I discovered that book, I was studying, um, to be a, uh, high school band director and, I but I was realizing at that year that I wanted to pursue music in some capacity. I found that book at a Barnes and Noble. I read it and it seems so easy from reading that book. It's like, oh, all you need to do is get a record deal, get a publishing deal, find a manager, get a lawyer. Here's how to negotiate all those contracts. Boom, you're a star. I'm like, oh, my gosh, here is the here is the pathway. Great. And then um, so I but I, I initially sat my parents down. I was like, OK, I'm dropping out of college. Here's my here's my book. Here's how I'm going to do it. And they're like, oh, God, no, um, this is you know, they they value education. And they're like, uh, can we find a compromise here? So I found a, a music industry, a contemporary music industry school in the Twin Cities um, where I went to study music business and songwriting. Um, I was only there for three semesters. And but, you know, we studied record label contracts. We studied all that stuff. And and that book, needless to say, when I but this was 2005 and all we were learning about was the old music business. And uh yeah. So like I learned in school and from that book, from from Passman's book, that what you need, like the only way to succeed with a music career is like what you need is to get signed. So like I finished mm-hmm. school and I'm like, all right, I'm ready for my deal. Where's my record deal? Like this, they told me <laughs> I can't start a music career without my record deal. So where's the deal? And I, like the deal wasn't coming. And I'm like, well, they didn't tell me. And and the the biggest gripe I have with Passman's book is like, you know, yes, it tells you how to negotiate a 174-page major record contract, but it doesn't tell you how to get it. And so it's like, I'm like, man, I am ready for this contract when it comes to me and I can find on page 63 the controlled composition clause and make sure that I strike that and da-da-da-da-da. But I'm like, but where's the contract? And so I was like, well, I guess I have two options. I can sit around twiddle my thumbs and, and you know, hope that someone, quote-unquote, discovers me because that's what I was taught. Or I can just like figure out how to 
do it on my own and like play shows because that's what I want to do. And I can just like build it how I want to build it. Um, so no, I mean, honestly, all the success that I've had, um, I learned how to do it on my own. Like I, you know, I, it's funny, literally last night, <laughs> this is cute. Someone DM'd me on Instagram and she, she did a story where she's, uh, she was watching, um, One Tree Hill on, um, her computer, her laptop and, uh, the subtitles were on and she's like, this is weird. Oh my God. She's filming the screen where the subtitles come on that says Ari Herstan singing last day. And then she turns the camera to her bed, like a foot to the left. And there's my book. She's like, and I'm reading his book right now. This is so weird. What's happening. And I was like, you know, I got my song on one tree Hill because I tweeted the music supervisor. It's like, there was no one that did that for me. And there was no one that like, you know, taught me how to book shows. Like I had to figure that out on my own and promote shows and, you know, all that. It was like, so everything I did for the most part, I learned by trial and error. And and I like appreciate the education I got as like a good history lesson, but like it wasn't relevant at all when I actually got into the world. That's actually such a good point. And, and I'm really curious your opinion on this too, because we both, you probably much more than me talk to a lot of independent artists Mm -hmm. about how to build careers and these different questions that people have coming up. And I think in a lot of ways you, you are very big on the education of all of these different things, but I feel like my advice to people is more so always mindset. Mm -hmm. I actually don't know what you need to do. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a mentality. I think that success as an independent artist is so much of that mentality of recognizing that you can do so much on your own. Yes. And if you don't know how to do it, there are definitely people you can ask for mm-hmm. specific things who can tell you technically how to do it. But it is a long journey of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And then when there is error, picking yourself back up mm-hmm. and trying again. And I think that you just like tweeting music supervisors and reaching out. Like I hustled blogs with a video I put up on YouTube. Right. right? And it's yep. like, sometimes you only need one response, but you have to be able to get rejected by 500 to get one. Oh yeah. How much of your success do you think is attributed just to this mentality that you have of like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm mm. going to make it. Uh, absolutely. And, and, um, mindset is a huge part of it. And I have insane grit and tenacity and don't take no as an answer ever. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, if there is a blockade, I find my way over it, around it, through it, under it. I, I literally, I don't stop. And I think that's part of, you know, yeah, I, I, um, I'm, my, I, I just like, I never accept no as an answer. So have I, I mean, I've been rejected so many times. I can't even count mm-hmm. like, yes, that one, you know, one tree hill placement was after getting rejected or no response from, you know, probably a hundred other music supervisors or whatever, every other show I was hoping for or looking at or any of that stuff. And, um, all of that. Uh, so, but I think what, you know, what I've found has been very helpful and what I like to encourage other musicians, um, navigating this on their own, 
you know, the most important thing I think any artist can do at any stage of their career, whether they're just starting out or they're 20 years deep, is to set concrete goals, uh, six-month goal, one-year goal, five-year goal, and and get very, very specific about it. Like, I I had the goal at the time, I want my song on One Tree Hill. Um, mm. and, and it was like, I also wanted my song on Grey's Anatomy. I wanted my song, you know, I wanted it on all these shows <laughs> that yeah, were like yeah, yeah. <laughs> playing the music, my music at the time, or like my kind of music, I guess. Um, but that was one of my goals. I guess more broadly, my goal was I want to get my, I want to get one of my songs on a TV show, but then I narrowed it down and I was like, okay, well, which TV show? Because there's thousands of TV shows and obviously my song, my music doesn't work on every TV show in existence. So I like started to do the research and like, all right. Oh, and I would like explore the shows like, oh, okay, this one really only plays hip hop. This is not the show for me. This show is all scored music. Well, obviously my song's not going to fit here. This show is, you know, and I found I was like, all right, well, Grey's Anatomy and One Tree Hill, these shows are playing acoustic singer songwriters. That's what I'm doing. So um, maybe this will work. And it's like, well, how, who, who puts music on these shows? There's got, that's got to be a job, right? So I just started like looking at researching and it was like, oh, they're called a music supervisor. Like, okay. And so then I found like, who's the music supervisor for these shows? And I was like, all right, Grey's Anatomy, Alexander Patsavis, Patsavis, and, and, you know, One Tree Hill, Lindsay Wolfington. And so I like followed their blogs, followed them on Twitter, found their emails, uh, you know, sent them emails, no response, followed them, uh, responding to them on Twitter, no responses. Um, you know, I even like chop shop where Alexander Patavis, uh, runs, like they said, you can, we only take physical submissions. So I sent them a box with a CD in it. And <laughs> I remember reading the blog of, uh, one of Alex's employees. And she was like, man, I wish I had Girl Scout cookies right now. We don't get Girl Scout cookies in LA and I just want some Samoas. And like, I was in Minneapolis and there were Girl Scouts walking around and I ran up one and I bought a box of Samoas and I sent it to, uh, um, to Casey Truman at, at Chop Shop with a with my CD and a note that says, "Hey, I read your blog. Saw you wanted some Samoas. Here you go." And she like wrote me back. She's like, "Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Thank you so much." And it wasn't that I sent her cookies. I don't advise anybody to send anyone cookies ever. But <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> that's creepy. Yeah. Um, but it was because you know she saw that I took the time to read her blog and that like she said that and it was just mm-hmm. like a sweet thing and. Um, I, I, she almost placed one of my songs. I mean, she was ready to place it in the season finale of Grey's Anatomy. And then she was like, oh, is this, is this CD out yet? Is this song unreleased or released? I'm like, oh, it's, it's out. It's released. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. We're only doing unreleased songs in this episode. Uh, I'm like, oh my God, no. But, but like, I'll take I, it down. <laughs> I know exactly. I said, that. I'm like, I, I could pull it down from iTunes. Like it's, it's gone. She's like, no, 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 no. You don't do it. Like we, it's really got to be unreleased. <laughs> well, I understand you being like, don't send anyone cookies. And if you're listening, don't send anyone cookies. But mm-hmm. that being said, it, like that was a different time where I feel like it was the entrance of like this di- very digital age. Mm. And so there were different rules. But I think I think the ethos of what you said is actually really applicable today. It's Mm -hmm. because everything is digital. Sometimes we take for granted that there are actually really real people on the other ends of these things. Right. Like so when you're talking about, you know, people who work at DSPs and people who, you know, if you're going a label trajectory, work at labels and publishers and music supervisors, they're not just like avatars on Twitter. And I think like there's something to engaging with another human being Mm. and 
kind of understanding their world and being a part of their community so that if you do go in with a hey this is my song you have already you already know what they're about you already yes. know what they're sinking you already know what they're looking for yes. and then you can accurately position yourself to be of value to them mm-hmm. and i think that that's really important because i think so often you know and i'm sure you've heard this it's like i didn't get on the spotify playlist Ugh. like mm-hmm. there's you know People are kind of waiting for these, like you said, Mm -hmm. you were waiting for the record deal, right? I was also waiting to get discovered on the subway, right? Right. You know, (laughs) mine's a little more delusional, (laughs) but, you know, I think that you don't have to wait for the opportunities. You just need to, like you said, set hyper-realistic goals um, and make them as specific as possible so you don't get discouraged, right? Mm Because if... Because if my only goal was to play Madison Square Garden, that's like a big leap. And it still is my goal. Yeah. But, you know, in the interim, I have a hundred other goals. Yes. Right. That ca- I can use as benchmarks kind of along the journey. Mm-hmm. Madison Square Garden is a great goal. That's like maybe that's the 10 year goal or something, you know, and then you can have the five year goal and you have the three year goal and the one year goal and the six month goal. And, and getting, like you said, hyper-realistic and specific about those goals. Um, and then you can just reverse engineer the goal and and figure out how to achieve it. And so, you know, I was like, all right, song on a TV show, I reverse engineered that to the point of I need to get Lindsay Wolfington my song. I got her the song. She mm-hmm. dug it. She kept it in her library for six months, then sent me an email and was like, all right, we want to use this. Uh, I need the contract by 5 p.m. today. And then it changed the whole trajectory of my career. Um because of that placement, but it was after getting rejected by all the other music supervisors, all these other failures, all of it. Um, but it was still, you know, like you said, there's a there's a hundred other things that you can do, but you just have to know what you're aiming for. I love that. Tell me about your opinions on the algorithm. <laughs> no, that's a very broad question. I guess what advice? <laughs> Fuck the algorithm. No, no, no. I can yeah, talk all I day mean, about the algorithm. Yeah. I guess I'm really curious what advice you would give to an artist who is trying to break out right now, mm-hmm. is not currently ticking the boxes of the algorithm, Yes. Um, but is trying to build a following and a community. I mean, so, well, Going back to what we were just talking about, set goals, very specific, realistic goals. What are the goals? Um, and the goal is, is it's not, you know, they can't be, I want to have a music career goal. Like that's way too broad. It can look like a thousand different ways. Um, but if it's like, you know, I want to get a million streams, um, there's there's ways to achieve that. It's not just through playlists. There's many different ways you can kind of go about that. Uh, but but then it, it's like, I always encourage everyone to to uh, set the goal, but then explain why that's a goal. Like, why do you want the streams? Because oftentimes I find that they don't, people, artists don't realize why they're doing certain things. So like, ugh, I need, I need millions of streams. Like why? Well, because that, that means that I, I, you know, get, I get a lot of fans. It's like, oh, so your actual goal is you want fans, right? Not streams. Because streams are streams are numbers. Streams are are faceless, nameless. Those are numbers. So you actually want fans. So if that's your goal, there's actually many different ways to get there. Like I just I just chatted with the head of music at Twitch. Um and uh he said the artists that are making over fifty thousand uh, dollars on Twitch are doing so from only 183 people. 
and it's like 183, 183. So it's like where we're all obsessed with, uh, you know, the these macro numbers of millions and millions of streams that is going to equate to, you know, thousands of dollars. It's just like, well, there are multiple ways to make a living doing music that aren't just how do I crack the algorithm on Spotify. Um, but I think it's really important for for you to set the goals, then ask, why do I want this goal? Because there isn't just one way to succeed and everyone's goals, everyone's goals are different because they have different um, strengths. Everyone has a different strengths um, and they have different um, desires and and intentions and what they want to do. Like I have some good friends who make very, very good livings doing music and they never tour and don't want to tour. They have a family. They're supporting the family. They love living the home, quiet home life. They don't want to tour. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know? So it's like, if, if, if someone were to say to me, like, what do I do? And, and I mean, I always say, I have no idea what you should do until I know what your goals are. Um, because like, if I were to tell that my friend is like, oh, well you need a tour, you need to figure out a way to go on tour or whatever. That's the wrong advice for him. Cause he doesn't want a tour. Um, yeah. but I, I, you know, specifically if we just look at like, if somebody's goal is, how do I crack the algorithm or how do I get more streams? I mean, you know, there, there's, uh, it's like, okay, TikTok is the hottest thing right now. And it's like, do you resonate with that community and that style of creation? If you do, and if you get it, that's an avenue you can explore and pursue. Now, it's not just something like you throw up a couple videos and and it doesn't happen. It's like throw your hands up and and you know that's the end of that. I mean, it's like anything. It's like if your goal is to get um, you know, uh, a million likes on TikTok or something like that, or, you know, 5 million views or 10,000 followers or whatever your goal is for TikTok. A, why do you want to do that? Uh, B, are you going to enjoy doing this? Which is another huge one because like you can't force that and see, like, you don't have to do be on Like, I don't think anyone has to be on TikTok right now. Um, it's all about, who are you targeting? Who's your audience? I mean, if you're targeting like 40 to 60 year olds and you're in the folk world, like don't go on TikTok. <laughs> don't, but, they're not there. They're not there. But yeah, if you're if you're targeting teenagers, I mean, sure, your that audience is there and you should probably figure out a TikTok strategy. But it's like that's why you can't just say like blindly, like go on TikTok because you got to know the goals. You got to know what your intentions are. But then it's like, all right, so I want 10 million views on TikTok. All right. How do we do that? So then you have to reverse engineer that goal. I got to learn everything there is to learn about it. You got to follow the artists that are doing similar things to them. Find the creation models that resonate with you. There's so many different ways that you can create um, and make that work for you. Um, you know, there's, I mean, it's not even worth naming it. There's like, it's constantly evolving with the stitching and the duets and the ways that you want to, um, you know, pop lyrics on your songs or no lyrics or do whatever. Um, that's one avenue, you know, and that we saw in 2020 was a massive driver of, uh, streaming success in, in the kind of younger pop realms of, uh, Spotify. But, you know, I've explored like one of the things that we teach at, at Ari's Tech Academy is how to run ads on Instagram stories. Um, and our instructor Lucidius, I mean, 
he has over 150 million streams, 500,000 monthly listeners. He's on zero official play. He's literally never been on an official Spotify playlist. Um, And he, you know, he's making like 20 grand a month just from streaming revenue. And that's solely because he did that by running ads. And so it's like, you don't have to get on playlists. That's, you know, you don't also have to, he's not on TikTok either. You don't have to be on TikTok. It's like, there's many different ways to approach and achieve those goals. Um, now the al- it's it's really interesting because like we can talk the algorithm like the algorithm is so interesting to me be- and Spotify specifically because so the algorithm supports this this artist Lucidius um, he's gotten probably five to ten million streams uh, just from algorithmic play play placements like Discover Weekly that kind of stuff radio whatnot um, but he's never been on a Spotify official editorial playlist and to me that's mind-boggling because like you see all the fans also like his similar artists they're all on playlists it's like he's doing his his music is very up to competitive standards in in the in he's a hip-hop artist in the realm that he's in um but but it's just it's not something that you know when you have humans that are working the editorial playlist and and the heads of spotify like to say if you start resonating on Spotify, we'll, we'll know and we'll place you on the playlist, but that's not entirely accurate. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think there are ways to work that and trigger it. And you do, you try to check all the boxes and you submit in Spotify for artists, the back end four weeks before your song comes out and cross your fingers and point people to Spotify. And, you know, um, you can get a, submit to user generated playlists, uh, through all the different ways that you can submit to them, DM them, whatever, make it. Li- I mean, we have spreadsheets of like all the user generated playlists that we think the music would work on and we DM them, we email them, um, you know, and, but it's like, it's a minefield out there for in, indie artists because it's like, do I pay to get on playlists? And it's like, well, no, I, I mean, flatly do not ever pay to get on a playlist. Uh, that's against Spotify's terms. The best advice. And I do think it goes back to this idea of kind of tenacity. And I think that if you're looking at something and it feels like, oh, this is like an easy solution to take <laughs> yeah. a double like look at it because yeah. I, I do feel like there are, there are quote unquote shortcuts, but a lot of those shortcuts aren't actually going to push your career forward in the way mm-hmm. that you'd expect. Mm. But in that you, you mentioned Twitch and I, and I want to talk about patronage and mm-hmm. how that kind of became a lost art in the digital renaissance of the music industry. And now that we're seeing that, you know, it's really hard to make a viable living if you're only dependent on streaming seems to be coming back in full force in a mm-hmm. lot of different ways from Twitch to discord to now NFTs, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so I'm really curious your experience with having your fans invest in you directly and where you see that heading. Great question. Um, and I appreciate the detailed research that you've done on my history and my career. So thank you for that. <laughs> As a fellow I podcaster, I, I totally admire and appreciate that uh, respect. Um, so um, yeah, I was very early on Kickstarter. Um, that was a godsend for me. At the time, I had priced out the record and it was going to be you know, over... 
I think it was like going to be over $10,000, $15,000 to make this record. Um, totally like, you know, bootstrapped independently. And I'm like, I don't have this kind of money. Like I'm barely getting by. I don't know how to do it. And I, lo- I did my Kickstarter and, and raised the full amount that we needed for it um, in 30 days on Kickstarter in, yeah, 2011. And that was, I mean, that was so amazing and like just eye-opening it's obviously evolved and shifted since then um in what what patronage can look like but i do believe absolutely we're getting back to an era of patronage um you know we had a hundred years of the music industry where it was all about um selling small priced items to a lot of people and the way that you were successful previously in music was you had to sell millions and millions of records. Uh, those were, you know, either vinyl records, cassette tapes, CDs, downloads now. And, and we're still in that kind of era of streams. Um, but before that, before there was uh, tangible f- mediums that held music, uh, that's not how musicians made a living. I mean, Beethoven, the only reason he was able to support himself was because he had a few, you know, wealthy noblemen that that paid him to do his art, to to compose. Um, And so, you know, the idea that uh, you have to target tons and tons of people and the only way to make a living as a musician is by um, getting millions of people to sign on to something, that's a relatively new concept in the history of music. Um, And I feel like we are especially in this digital era and and getting back to an era where you can increase engagement but also increase the support for the artists because of patronage and whatever that looks like i mean you know whether it's going to be a patreon or an only fans or a band camp or even on twitch or um, anything like that or even just on your email list organically doing your thing um, there are ways that we're seeing, or NFTs, like you said, um, it's like fans, this is what I learned early on. Fans want to pay artists. You just have to let them. And I think a lot of artists don't realize that if they have fans, fans will support them. And so they don't actually give them opportunities to support them. They're like, well, I'm supposed to send them to Spotify, even though I'm not going to make any money from my fans on Spotify, but like, that's what I'm taught. So I'm like, Hey fans, go listen to me on Spotify. It's like, well, no, you know, let Spotify be the discovery tool for new fans. Let Spotify be like, you know, roll the dice, uh, spin the wheel, play the lottery, hope you get on a playlist or an algorithm thing. Um, and your fans are going to listen to you how they listen to music. So whether that's Spotify or Apple Music or Bandcamp, they're going to listen to it. But if you say, hey, the best way to support me, fan, is through Bandcamp because I get 85% of that money, um, please go support me and name your price there. They'll go and do that. Like I've had somebody pay me $200 for my album on Bandcamp just because like it was a name your price thing. Um, and, you know, or if you just like ask them, give them ways to buy in, um, they your, your diehard fans will do that. You know, that's the concept of the thousand true fans. If you can get a thousand of your fans to pay you $100 a year, you're going to have a very successful career. Um, so I, I think it is a, the responsibility of the artist to find the most meaningful way 
to engage their supporters in their audience and then how to monetize them for a lack of a better term um and and um engage them in a way where they want to support you and they will they will support you um and uh i mean that i'm i'm interested if i could ask you like what brought you to nfts i'm still very basic in my understanding <laughs> of this thing and and what did made you decide to to jump into that realm and how has how has that been so it's really interesting and and to take one step back and and this concept really um fucked up my brain um mm. is the idea that for the entirety of my career, I have accepted the valuation of the music industry of my music. And I did that because I view creating music and art and like being in community with my fans as like the highest of privileges in the whole entire world. Like, sure. and yes. so I was happy to kind of participate within that ecosystem. Um, and I've always had issue with like, my own value inherently, um, sure. which we won't get into cause that's for therapy. Right. <laughs> but this idea that like I kind of participated in this ecosystem and viewed it as enough. And I think it's really interesting. And you just said it so eloquently. If you just give people the opportunity to support you because they love you and they value what you do, like why not give them? And so for the entirety mm -hmm. of my career, I've essentially, intentionally done things for free because I'm somebody who, when I was growing up, I didn't necessarily have like access to music. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I was, you know, at FYE listening to as many albums <laughs> as I could knowing that in two weeks, maybe I could buy one. Right. right. And so I do think that what has happened in streaming, um, is inherently good even though it has essentially driven down the value of this digital asset, I think it's mm -hmm. opened a, a lot of doors for anyone to create and distribute their art. Yes. And it's create opened a lot of doors for consumers to have access to all of that art at a very low price point. Um, and what I'm so excited about now is this reemergence of patronage and I'm using it in the form of NFTs because that really excites me it's like uh justin blau said it the best it's an investable layer so you have the baseline where music is accessible to all and i don't think that's ever going to go away um that being said if you start creating collectible layers of that music that people can invest in knowing that they're investing in you and getting something rare at times, right? Or something, right? We're creating digital scarcity where there hasn't been any since the inception of the internet. And yes. so that really excites me. And right now, NFTs are like the wild west. It's like the dot-com beginning of the internet. <laughs> um, ask uh, forgiveness, not permission and experiment. And so I kind of saw these, you know, paths for me narrowing in these more traditional systems, meaning I'm not really, I'm, I don't do TikTok and mm -hmm. I'm not making music for the algorithm and mm -hmm. I don't really want to do those things. So this is an experiment to like reinvigorate the value of my whole back catalog that I have full ownership of. And mm -hmm. it's an experiment of how can I release music and instead of me determining what the value is, instead of Spotify determining what the value is, letting the market 
determine what the value is. And I think that mm-hmm. RAC did that really brilliantly with his tape, if you don't know about that. Um, he released it on an early iteration of a platform called Zora. And mm-hmm. essentially, he let the market decide the price of his tape. So it hovered mm-hmm. for a while around 200 shot up to $4,000 per tape. Wow. Went back down to 500 I think it the top it hit was around $10,000 for a tape cassette. Wow. Right? But it's a scarce, right? There were only 100 right. made. I believe 100. Don't quote me on that. Uh-huh. Right? So it's it's this idea of how can you create scarcity where there's ubiquitous access? Yes. And I think what the future of this is, is not going to be what it is now. Right now, it is in a hype bubble and it's hyper... There's a lot of charged energy around it, but I do genuinely believe it's the future. And -hmm. I think the future is creating ecosystems with your fans where patronage is tied to a token that fans Mm -hmm. invest in. And the better, you know, the more people that are involved in that community, the higher the value of that token is. So they're actually a part of the economy and they're getting benefit from that. And so Mm -hmm. that's like my general spiel on it. But I think that... As I experiment more and I have a few experiments coming, some that are a bit wild and some that are just, you know, throwing some things out there. But I'm excited to see where it lands. Mm -hmm. Cool. And um, that's amazing. And and thank you for that um, breakdown. And I'm so new to this realm. I'm literally just starting my uh, research because like everyone in the music industry right now is like the last two weeks is talking about it, especially now that Grimes uh, launched hers um, recently and broke so many records. Um, I still don't quite have a grasp on what it is. <laughs> yeah. And but that was a really great explanation. And so I'm starting to understand it a lot, a lot more because of that. But I mean, I think above all, you're completely right. It is um a way to bring the fans into the world in a in a way of patronage. And and that's that's it is really interesting that you kind of let the market uh, decide the value of it. I mean, I think going back to Kickstarter or even Patreon, it is challenging to figure out what uh, price points you should set. Uh, I remember when I did my Kickstarter, I was like, oh, I'll write a song for you based on keywords that you give me or based on a, a call that we have, and I'll write it for you or f- for somebody. And and that was, you know, I charged $250, uh, and I would write a song for them. Um that sold out in the first day people wanted that at $250. I'm like, man, I should have charged more. And then I opened up, you know, five more at $250. But like those kinds of things is just, I didn't know the value of different. And, and then there was another package that I charged 500 for. I don't even remember what it was, but nobody bought it. Um, yeah. And and so it's like, I didn't know the value of a lot of the things or what my fans wanted or what they were interested in. Um, and uh and it's it's an interesting concept that you can um, kind of offer up these with scarcity um, in a digital realm, which I still am not completely uh, <laughs> I still don't completely understand. But um, but I, I, I more or less understand the concept. Um, yeah, it's it's um, interesting. I, I'm curious if this is going to last. I mean, you know, blockchain has been around. For, for quite a while at this point. I mean, I remember sitting down with Benji Rogers, who uh, infamously is the uh, founder of Pledge Music, but all the shit that went down with Pledge Music, um, you know, happened after he left. And he was running dot blockchain for a while. And he told me, I want to say it was maybe 
gosh, uh, five, six, seven years ago that like blockchain was going to completely change how metadata worked in the music industry and how we could track everything and how we weren't going to be submitting uh, stuff through distributors anymore is going to be through the blockchain and all that is still yet to I yet to mm-hmm. see any movement or progress on that. So I don't know if we're in an a NFT bubble right now um, and or if it's going to settle in or if it really will be the future. I mean, anything that brings the fan closer to the artist and enables them to support the artist in a real way. Uh, I am all for. So I honestly, whether it's NFTs, Patreon, whatever, I'm just happy that some that that is happening. Yeah, I you know what it is? I don't think that it's a bubble. I think that the use case will change over time. And I do think these legacy systems really benefit from the black box financially. Right. Um, And so I do think that there's going to be a lot of resistance for like these legacy publishers and labels to be fully transparent in their finances, because I know Mm -hmm. for a fact there are millions of dollars sitting in that black box (laughs) that you have to do, you know, lengthy and expensive audits to find. Yes. And so what I do think is that this is a renaissance in just the ability for people to have access in the art world, especially like I look at a lot of what's happening in NFTs right now. And I think it kind of resembles what happened with Napster and, you know, in the beginning Mm. of streaming and in the beginning of uh, file sharing. And I think that the music industry just kind of really fucked it up. And so yeah. I, I think right now it's booming in this other industry, the the mm. traditional art industry, essentially. Sure. And they're not going to be able to ignore it. But I do think that, and I've preached this, and I know you preach this, the mm. value, what what this boom is kind of reaffirming for me in the years and, you know, kind of the hard journey of being an independent artist is mm-hmm. there is an immense value in ownership and autonomy of, you know, your career, your masters, your publishing, um, because it allows you to move forward on your own. And so I think that I'm really grateful for that. And for anyone who's listening, just like, if you can maintain ownership and hustle and figure out a way to make it work, Mm -hmm. like you're just going to have all of these different options because I won't even get into like the issues that people are having, you know, who are signed to record deals, who are dropping NFTs, right. but can't spend the money because they don't know if they're going to be able to keep it. Right. Um, right. And so it's oh an interesting gosh. time. <laughs> that's a whole, I didn't yeah. think about that, but that's it's probably somewhere in the contract. Uh, it says there's a line that says in any uh, use form, in, in, in any form um, now known or unknown in the future it, within the universe. I mean, they use such broad terms because technology keeps evolving that yeah. most likely some lawyers yeah, anticipated this as something and they put something in there that was just like in any form that we don't know about yet. This is you're going to have to pay us. <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to hear a litigation of like the Internet is not in the universe um, or something. <laughs> You know what I mean? We can get we can get really meta. Um, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) No, this has been a really great conversation and I really appreciate you coming on. And for everyone listening, um, 
Ari's take is like a go-to if you have any questions on really any aspect of the music industry. It's such a useful tool, at least for me, when I have questions. Thank you. And I want to end this conversation with one final question. Because you do so many things and your career is just so full. How do you balance your personal life, your art, and then the art of your business uh, in the ecosystem of your life and career? Great question. Um, and I'm, that's something that I, you know, struggle with every day, but, um, specifically with the art balance of the art and the business, um, because I have, because Ari's take has evolved from just a blog to now a full fledged music business education company with five full-time employees, 10 other part-time employees, like thousands of uh, people who are part of our academy. Like it's a full thing now. Um, I'm, you know, running this company now. I have to focus most of my time on that. And I want to, it's like, I'm extremely passionate about this. And and I felt like this pull and this um, something that I'm, contributing to the music community that's needed and necessary and and I appreciate those words that you just gave me about it and and um so I spend the majority of my time working on the Ari's take stuff um that being said I'm still an artist at my core and like if I don't if I don't make time for my art I will go crazy and and like I um, especially, you know, my, my newest, my new album, uh, that's coming out now. Uh, I made that out of necessity because Mm -hmm. I went through a breakup from an 11 year relationship and like, I was spinning, my world was upside down and I was like running my career and my career was like the Ari State career side was thriving, but like personally I was a mess and I, you know, I have a therapist, but like, I realized therapy was very much head for me like it was all head and it was it was um trying to to make sense in my head about things and and like put plans together and that kind of stuff whereas like it wasn't really affecting getting into the heart of what I was really feeling and and I realized that songwriting was the only way that I could make sense of that for me so I carved out one day a week um that I turned off all notifications I didn't even go on the internet that day and I just spent that day writing, songwriting. And um, that was, and I, I still do that. I, I carve out one day a week. My team knows that I'm unavailable that on Tuesdays. They they can't get in touch with me. Um, and I spend the whole day creating art and and songwriting and, and just, just, you know, focusing on creating. Um, and that, you know, with the the album, like I, I didn't I didn't sit down to write a new album. I I was writing songs every Tuesday because I I needed to make sense of what I was going through. And at the end of it all, I'm like, okay, like actually, I have a body of work here, and I would like to release this in in more more sense of the word than one. Like I I need this release to be able to move on. Um, and then you know, so that is really helped me um just carving that day out and then personally you know um i am very serious about weekends um my fiance and i we uh on saturdays we literally turn off our phones so saturday is our day where we completely disconnect um 
our phones are off. We don't go on computers. Like we spend the day. Uh, I have a. I I'm. I might be the one who actually mm-hmm. reads the New Yorker magazine in print, and so like, <laughs> I I read us the New Yorker magazine every week when they get delivered, or we're currently reading um Obama's memoir, um, and so like I'll read to us, I'll read to her, and so we'll just kind of spend the day reading or watching movies or something like that, um. And that's really nice to just slow everything down and disconnect and just shut off the phone. Um, you know, I'm I'm Jewish, and uh, there's the thing called Shabbat or the Sabbath, which is like very religious Jews um, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Uh, they don't do any work or they don't use any technologies. I mean, some extremely observant religious Jews won't even like flip on a light switch or turn on a stove. I'm not religious at all. Um, But I like the concept of taking the day of rest and unplugging and just disconnecting a bit. Um, And so that that's been really helpful. I love that. I, I need to take that advice. Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded and edited by me, Veritech. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.